Grab your popcorn and silence those cell phones because the show is about to start. Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. Rick Blaine is an award-winning film critic featured on thebigscreen.net.org and has been highlighted on over 75 unreleased independent film posters in less than 12 different countries. Nick Brown. He's been the high school projectionist for the AV Club for over nine semesters and can be heard nightly at the theater talking loudly in the row behind you about the film being screened. And now, they're joining forces. Ladies and gentlemen, Rick and Nick talk flicks. Rick and Nick talk flicks. Nice roll. Well, we don't have a butler or any staff, so I figured adding something more regal to the opening would just be the thing. Dave, we are still fill-ins for this show, and you're asking for a butler or some kind of staff for the show. I don't think these are any of our decisions to make. By being the stunt doubles, we're already metaphorically in the hole, so getting staff might pave over the hole, and then maybe we can gain altitude from there. I don't know, but, you know, I had to go get my own donut and my own Walter, so if we had had a Jeeves butler, it might make me feel more black tie, white noise. Jeeves. To use a David Bowie reference. I miss ass Jeeves. It's Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. I'm Dave Brooks. I'm Joel Hoover, and we are sponsored by the Bemidji Theater, which is located on Highway 2, just down from the airport, and is a great place to catch a movie, Dave. Oh, I was just there. We went and saw, uh, uh, oh, I can't remember the name of the movie we just saw, but uh, I always love going there. After a while, they all kind of blend together. Going to see all these movies over the many, many, many years that I've been here. <laughs> and even the changes. They redid that theater like 15 years ago, and even still it feels new. How recent did you go? Uh, within the last two weeks, uh, we just we, we were going to go see that hockey documentary. We didn't make it in time. Uh, it was only there for a week, Hockeyland, which was oh, filmed yeah. in Eveleth Gilbert, which is where my wife is from. So yep. that would have been fun to see yep. that on the big screen. But we, it was only there for a week. We couldn't make it. Um, but uh, tight time frame. Yeah, yeah. It just and stuff in life. It just it wasn't working out. We were gonna try, and it, something came up. We couldn't go, and now it's too late. Okay. So, but we were there the week before that, so that was good. I'm trying to remember what the movie was. But, I'll let you think about that while I tell people about the fact that there are five dollar movie nights that yeah. you can go to on Tuesdays. Great time to be able to go. Of course, they've got great concessions as well that you can enjoy, and ten different screens to be able to catch a, a movie and it's a great place to go and catch up on what is current at the movies right now so head on down highway two just down from the airport outside of bemidji and you can catch a movie at the bemidji theater and no they do not have pumpkin spiced ices that's good Whoa. yeah yeah pumpkin spice yeah. icy well they... it gets a little overboard so i mean it's just a matter of time before it's... and come on in for a nice soothing pumpkin spice ices. You're... not here you're preaching to the choir man <laughs> all right today we've got another rick and nick review coming your way and we're going to start doing more of this here down the road and in the future talk we talked about that several episodes ago of maybe we review a current movie that's out but maybe sometimes we go back and review some of the classics. And we get into the Wayback Machine. We are in more ways than one today with not just one, but three movies that we are going to be going back to and reviewing today. So before we get to that, a couple of current items to get into. Uh, number one, you and I were talking about this in advance of this episode. You Originally, this episode was being talked about may, being some kind of James Bond who should play him episode well and we remembered we did that yes lo and behold we did that previously but there have been some some rumblings that steam is being picked up in terms of 
having a little bit more work being put in to determine who that's going to be by the producers behind James Bond. And based on what we're seeing and hearing, it sounds like one of the most prominent names in the hunt for playing James Bond for years now is maybe mutually with the producers not in the running as much anymore. Yeah, Idris Elba has been, um, not, I don't know about a favorite, but he's definitely been brought up on almost every list of who you think maybe the next Bond would be. Uh, apparently he's starting to come down that list a little bit, and even Elba himself is like, yeah, I don't I don't, I don't, think that's going to happen. So where it goes from here, I don't know, but apparently they are starting the process, very early in the process as to who the new Bond will be to replace Daniel Craig. Of course, no one does Bond forever, so like many have come before him, Brosnan and Connery and so forth. Now Craig is in the history of Bond, and there will be a new one. Who will it be? We gave our take roughly a year ago, so go back to the fall of 2021, and you can hear our version of that. But it's it's starting. I think it'll be a matter of a couple of months, and then they're going to have an announcement, and -and so-and-so will come out from the curtain, and then they'll start filming. So stay tuned. That's right. Yeah, we'll be definitely keeping a close eye on that as they start to get a little bit more into the process of figuring out who that person is is going to be. On another note, there's a movie out right now that you and I previewed a little bit during our yeah. fall preview, and it it raises once again an interesting question of what pre-movie PR, for better or for worse, does for a movie. And yes, I do mean that, for better or for worse, because intrigue can sometimes get created when you have some odd pre-movie kerfuffles like the one that was experienced by Don't Worry Darling, which is out right now, was directed by Olivia Wilde, starring Harry Styles, Florence Pugh, among others. There have been a lot of different things attached to this movie as far as pre-movie buzz. For instance, Olivia Wilde and Shia LaBeouf having a falling out when Shia LaBeouf was involved with the movie, which led to him not being involved with the movie anymore. And Harry Styles took his part. That's right. And then we had that whole strange award show. Did Harry Styles spit on co-star Chris Pine at all or not? Then there was all this talk about strife with various cast members and Wild, which has led to apparently a letter saying, no, everything was fine, hunky-dory. All of that leading to a movie that has gotten relatively mixed reviews from critics but pretty good audience reviews. So it raises that age-old question, Dave, of what does pre-movie PR, good or bad, do for a movie? And is any PR good PR for a movie going in, even if it's not necessarily the greatest? It raises your consciousness of the movie's existence, for one. You know, a lot of movies come and go, and there was a what? There was a movie about who? Who is it? What? And that happens a lot. This one isn't one of those. It's not flying under the radar. But how much of this... This is a question I personally am asking. How much of this is just conjured up? How much of this might be, I'm just, I don't want to play, there's a Pat Butt Master behind the scenes kind of thing, but is there an entity that's trying to tear the movie down or Olivia Wilde down? I mean, how come she's being served custody papers while on stage in a basically a subpoena? It's, that's weird. You know, why don't you get her as she comes off the stage? You know where she'll be then, and then you can serve her with papers. But on stage, as she's building up for the movie, interesting. Or could it be that there's a really good PR firm behind the movie, and they're going to come up with your theory of any PR is good PR? Um, so Shia LaBeouf is removed from the movie for bringing his, let's call it, eccentric attitude, which Olivia Wilde said, nope, we're just 
we're not going to have that here. But we're even not then, do this. all this stuff that comes up, oh, she screamed behind the set. All of this gets refuted. The entire cast and crew, pretty much, they all sign a letter in response to this. No, that didn't happen, and this was a good environment, and everybody enjoyed it, and it was good. And no, that didn't. That wasn't the case. Uh, Shia LaBeouf wasn't just shown the door. There was leaked video of uh, of Olivia Wilde leaving a message for him, saying, "Hey, we'd like to, you know, try to work something out, but at the same time, we we can't have this." So, and evidently, Shia wasn't going to change his ways, so he was let go, and now here comes, um, I keep wanting to say one of the Jonas Brothers, but it's not. It's um, um, ah, one of the former members of One Direction. Harry Styles, thank you. Who, by the way, is involved with Olivia Wilde, yeah, Yeah, which you just said. Now, but I think that came about because he he brought in on the project. So, reviews are good, uh, but not overwhelmingly glowing. The audience score is definitely higher than critic score, and- how many times do critic scores and audience scores really match up? That's rare, and it doesn't really matter. If you want to see the movie at all, see it. You know, I will see any of the whatever franchise or anything with so-and-so in it because I'm a fan. For better or for worse, I might walk out of there going, eh, but I'm going to go see it. Others, I'm like, no, I want to see if it's any good before I go see it. So, Yeah, it is interesting the effect that PR especially looking at negative PR, can have on a movie going in because sometimes a movie rises above that and rises above, oh, this was a troubled shoot, it got delayed. That's one of the biggest red flags that pops up sometimes or there was a casting change or this had to be dealt with or there was internal cast strife. You put all of those together sometimes and, boy, you're just like, wow, this this was some kind of movie here. Uh, For instance, I think of... What was that recent project that was done by, I, I forget if it was DC or if it was Marvel. It was... Um, Ezra Miller? Is that, that where you're going? No, I'm not, I'm not talking about... Oh, boy. That's, that's another something thing. completely different. But um, what was that project that... It was actually attached to the X-Men. It, it was related related to the X-Men. Was it the the School for Gifted Youngsters or something like that? Oh, The, the oh. movie that got, got just kicked the back mutants. over and over and over and over. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, the mutants. Yeah. Where it was just kicked back time after time after time after time. And everyone going into that movie was just like, this feels like it is destined to fail with the way that it was just stuck in production misery for for years, literally. New Mutants, wasn't that what it was called? The New Mutants. There we go, That's yeah. That's what it was. That, that movie just got perpetually kicked back, and then it got into the COVID swirl as well and had to get kicked back even further, and people were like, oh, boy, can you just give us this movie already? And then it just did not do well at all. Yeah, but I think the reason it got into the a lot of the issues, COVID notwithstanding, was because they knew they had a problem. Now, just because a movie is a difficult shoot and there's production and maybe cast issues and whatever, does not a death sentence. I mean, Star Wars, George Lucas pulled some of his closest buddies together from film, film school, including names like Spielberg and Coppola and you name it, and all of them were like, yeah. Spielberg has said he was the only one other than George Lucas that actually liked it and saw the potential in it, and everybody else was like, dude, run from this. It was saved in the edit. There's ways that you can make it better. But then there are times where you do all that polish, you do all the edit, you do all this, and it's not getting any better. And that's what New Mutants was. I think it could have been better, but it needed to happen at the conception stage. Um, it, it just wasn't there from the start. A different pass on the script, and at that point, it's already filmed. It's done. It's over. You know. But it just, you know, Jaws didn't go very well. But it's one of the biggest hits of all time. There's ways to save it, and then there's time where you just realize you're you're just 
polishing an elephant's toenail. It's never going to get better. (laughs) All right. On that metaphorical note, we'll get into today's topic. So we've been enjoying the idea of getting into doing some more reviews, some Rick and Nick reviews of, of movies, especially if it's a current one. But also past movies as well, and some of our favorites, some of the classics, giving our definitive reviews on them. So today it's going to be kind of a triple review, because we are reviewing the entire Back to the Future series. All three movies, parts one, two, and three, kind of putting it together as one big review today. And for people who have listened to this podcast, they know the Back to the Future series is one of Dave Brooks's all-time favorites. It is right up there, maybe at the top, very close to the top. You've said before it's it's in that sphere, Dave. You've, have, you've described it like that. I don't have a number one, and since this is a trilogy, obviously it can't be a number one, but I consider it basically one movie because it's truly a trilogy. It's essentially two weeks out of the life of Marty McFly, time traveler. <laughs> it's really what it is. He spends a week in the 50s, spends a week in the Old West, um, and the second one is basically, what, a day? Something like that. So it's two weeks is what it is. And it's one story. Boy, that makes your head spin to think about. Oh, yeah. That movie moved at breakneck pace anyway. But it was, um, this one is, it's just awesome. It's, It's in a lot of ways almost perfect. The first movie is darn near perfect. In fact, they teach the screenplay and the story of the first movie in screenplay classes on how you have a perfect screenplay. There's setups and there's payoffs. The first 15 minutes of that first movie Kind of drags, but everything that is going on in that first 15 minutes is setting something up that's going to come later. That's right. And all of it gets paid off. Even in ways you're not even really paying attention, you will miss. The Twin Pines Mall, at the end, if you notice the sign, it's changed. Now it's the Lone Pine Mall. Why? Because when Marty showed up in the 50s, he ran over one of the two pines that were fenced up. If you're not paying attention, you didn't get it. You know, now it's not the, it's not the Clayton Ravine, it's the Eastwood Ravine, because he fell, allegedly fell into the ravine. It's, it's all those little fun things that show up. It is just perfectly done. And uh, then the second one, not just let's go do a sequel, let's revisit a time period. No, let's almost literally revisit the original movie. It's almost meta without being meta. It was uh, it was exceptionally good, all of it. When you look at the people who were a part of making Back to the Future happen, it, it's no wonder then that you had this kind of storytelling, this kind of threading of of pieces from here to here to here. I mean... Robert Zemeckis has sort of become known for that, and and with Robert Zemeckis movies, you put together those kinds of threads in, in that way when you look at some of his best work, and Back to the Future, no different with, with the way that that was, but it became a, a touchstone movie, and it became as well-liked and well-revered throughout history and the history of movies as it did because of the storytelling and the way that it did it, while also at the same time having just scores of charisma that came with it too. And, oh, by the way, within a sci-fi theme of time travel that was brought together in a whole new way here. It was a perfect storm. A lot of the charisma came from the page, but it also came from the cast, and we'll delve a little more into that. Uh, You had three great shepherds of this movie. You had Spielberg, you had Zemeckis, and, of course, uh, Bob Gale, you got to give a lot of credit to, who really came up with the story, generally. Uh, People threw in other little parts, but he really wrote the skeletal structure of that. And And it came from something real simple. He was visiting his parents, 
And he was going through his dad's old yearbook and realized that his dad was a popular guy and Bob Gale was not such a popular guy. He was kind of an outcast geek like some of us can relate to. And he kind of wondered, I wonder if I had gone back in time and met my dad in high school if we would have been friends. And that's the beginning of this. That's how it all kind of evolved into the story. Now, he and Zemeckis had gone through some film school together. They were kind of buddies. They had done a couple of movies together. But they weren't working out as far as box office success. Nope. They kind of went and did their own separate things. And then Zemeckis did uh, Romancing the Stone. It was a hit. Well, what are you going to do now? He said, I'm going to go back with my buddy. He's got a great story. And we're going to do this time travel movie. Because they apparently had pitched this over 40 times to, to different studios. But they couldn't get it to fly. And what I'm reading is that it wasn't. It wasn't necessarily considered raunchy enough, apparently, to go up against other 80s comedies that well, were it was, out there. There was part of it, it's yes and no, that wasn't the raunchy teen comedy like which was very popular at the time. Porky's had come out and some others. But this has also got an issue Disney passed on it because at the center of this movie is this guy's got to get his parents back together because his mom in the past has developed feelings for her own son without knowing it's her son. Right. So it's, you just call it what it is, it's kind of incestuous at the heart of this thing. But it's done in a wholesome way. She doesn't know. She has no idea. He does. And he's like, nope, 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 nope. And uh, it just is kind of a comedy in that regard. Disney said, under no way, shape, or form are we going to involve this, you know. But over time, even with, you know, Woke and Me Too and so forth, this is still a great movie. It deals with bullying and it deals with other stuff and it deals with finding your true inner self and standing up and being yourself. And Consequences of your actions, yes. too. Yeah, well, that's there's what it's a all lot, about. There's a lot of that. Yes, and that is one of the biggest things that helps make this concept fly, even if... Back to the Future's concept of time travel, which has been riffed on by other forms of media and other properties, is perhaps flawed. It's still an entertaining flaw. The Avengers say it's not that. That's not how the way it works. There is no timeline. <laughs> but you know, just to take a scientific approach, until we develop a time machine and we really see how this works. Um, it, those are the kind of the two theories. There's the string theory, like in Back to the Future, where there's one timeline can be altered, but there's one timeline, and then there's the fractal timeline, where any decision, if you can go left or you can go right, you do in different dimensions, in different universes, in different realities, and that'll change everything. Well, regardless of the accuracy of it, doing the timeline in this particular form made for great narrative fun. And it made for a lot of really entertaining ideas that came from it, which we'll get into later, especially when talking about the sequel, but even even still the uh, the third one as well. But for the first movie itself, it's it's so interesting to read about how Back to the Future came together. Never mind doing the, a, a straight-up review of the movie. It's so interesting to read about how it was all formed when it came to putting the cast together because they, they really nailed it on on a lot of levels with each person. I mean, Christopher Lloyd just ends up being the the perfect Einstein manic scientist type with Doc Brown. But when you can but consider this that Marty McFly, the original idea was to get Michael J. Fox for it because of his work that he had done with Family Ties. But it was because of Family Ties that Michael J. Fox was originally not cast. And in fact the movie had been filmed for about a month and a half with somebody else as Marty McFly. 
yeah, uh, say say what you want about that, but uh, they they wanted Fox in a big time way. He had eclipsed what the Family Ties show was originally about these former hippie parents raising yuppie kids, and he really stood up and took over the show to he the did. point where the show became the focus of Alex P. Keaton, Michael J. Fox's character, and not the parents. And so there was amazing talent there. But no, we're not letting him out of this contract. We're not letting him to go shoot this time travel movie. He was filming Teen Wolf literally down the street from where they were filming Back to the Future. And they had uh, a different guy in the role. Um, and I know I could see his face. I know his name. Eric Stoltz. Eric Stoltz, thank you. Yep. I was going to say um, one of his character names from another movie that he'd filmed. <laughs> but not. I was, I was like, no, I know that's not Keith. That's uh, anyway, Eric Stoltz is a great actor. He shows up all over the place. But he took the role very seriously. Oh, he, man. He, he wasn't playing me- for humor. He went method acting on yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Biff Tannen said that when he would get punched by Marty, he was really getting punched. And he I said, dude, just back it off a little bit. I don't need to get hurt. But Plus, he kept doing it. when they weren't filming, he wanted people to call him Marty McFly. He would do things like that. Apparently, too... He ate lunch on his own in his trailer as well. He was just very separate from the cast. And a lot of people said uh, among the cast that when they brought in Michael J. Fox, the mood changed completely around the shoot. And it was in January of, I think, 1985 that they had to do this. So they they had filmed, I think, for 30-plus days or so with Eric Stoltz in the role and for starters, there was a very hard conversation between those who put the movie together and him to tell him, it's not working, man. We gotta, we gotta move on from you. Then they had to to make some special concessions, shooting wise, to be able to make it work with the schedule that Michael J. Fox was on for for Family Ties. Apparently, he was exhausted when he would be off camera. On camera, he was dynamite, but away from camera, he was completely exhausted from having to go between the two and shoot them pretty much simultaneously. When you're 21 years old, playing a 17-year-old, you've got all the energy in the world. He would shoot family... To an extent. Part of the deal was with the creators of Family Ties is like, we get him on the weekdays. You can have him at night and on weekends, but we have him Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. And so, as Michael J. Fox had put it, they had a driver that would come and get him, and not just honk the horn, would come into the house and get him out of bed physically, and yes. get him into the shower, and then get him into the car. And when you're 21, you could pull that off. If you were my age now, as as vivid as and vital and full of verve as I think I am, I don't think I could pull that off. The man didn't sleep for however long it took for him to shoot it. And they had to reshoot a lot of scenes that had already been shot and already been done. And even Christopher Lloyd had said, I conjured up so much energy to do this. I, I think I got it. I don't know if I could do it again. But as history shows, clearly he did. Um, it just worked better. The, the mood was better. The tone was better. Eric Stoltz is a great actor. Don't get me wrong. He had just done Mask, where he plays a seriously deformed boy. Got great reviews. He was up for awards. He's done a lot of good since then. He's still active. Um, but it's just it, it called for something that wasn't on screen. The comedic moments that were written in there, they just weren't popping. And it got to the point where Bob Gale and Bob Zemeckis realized the half the part of this fun is the humor, and it's just yes. not there. They talked to Spielberg and said, I think we got to recast. And Spielberg, God love him, said, this is your movie. If you want to, I will back you up 100%. And at this point, Spielberg had enough under his belt that he was Spielberg that we know. He had already got a lot of big hits. 
I will back you up if you want to do this, but this is your call, and that's exactly what happened. And that's why Michael J. Fox was the guy for this role, because he had developed that comedic timing on Family Ties. I mean, they filmed that in front of a live studio audience, and he, with his delivery of lines, with his quips that he would give. I mean, I remember watching that as a kid when I watched Family Ties in syndication with my family. Like, he had this comedic timing on that show that was superb. And made for the perfect kind of role for Marty McFly, the the perfect kind of guy for the role of Marty McFly, to go alongside of this manic energy of Christopher Lloyd's Doc Brown and just the the craziness of some of his ideas. And then you have Marty, who is just bewildered at times and has great lines to go with it. A, a kid who then gets dropped in the past and is am- amongst his parents, and he's just he's just beside himself of. What am I doing here? How do I figure this out? And just is kind of kind of beside himself over it all. And it makes for this very funny, comedic kind of touch then. And then, of course, with what happens with having to try to get his mom and dad together. And he's, he's trying to figure out how to do that while also trying to deal with this bully of his present day who he is now encountering in a past life. It just makes for, for a hilarious collision of things there, too. And... and it it sets up the the premise on on all of it like you talked about there in the opening 15 minutes you've get you get him then just kind of disappointed with where his life is at and he expresses to his girlfriend Jennifer that he doesn't feel like his life is really going much of anywhere because his family isn't going much of anywhere and it's a disappointing family on the whole and he's he's got aspirations but he feels like he's kind of stuck in nowheresville with with where his family's at. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, you know, one of the things we had talked about, we were kind of alluded with the current event with Don't Worry Darling and the casting change and all the drama. While in Hollywood circles, they were very aware of what was going on. This stuff just didn't leak out. There was no internet back then. There wasn't a lot of those trade magazines. The where... only thing that had leaked out was the fact that there were production delays. I mean, that was that was known, and they had to yeah. kick back the release of the movie a little bit. I yeah, think. but it's not like it was a known property. Nobody knew anything about it. If there's a Marvel movie today and there's problems, you're going to know about it because everyone can't wait to see the new whatever movie. This is back to the who, what, huh? What is that? What does that even mean, huh? Nobody knew really that much about it yeah it's this movie that spielberg's involved in it could be interesting they're having some issues but they'll figure it out then and a lot of people even having the years since the movie came out what there was a guy that wasn't michael j fox it was marty mcfly what huh a lot of that came out to the public consciousness long after the movie came out and so it wasn't like it was maybe in trades it was in trade circles of people that knew the business and were in the business they were aware well spielberg's got a problem on his hands well well but it wasn't really known to the public. All I knew is this really cool movie was coming out. It was getting good buzz. People went and saw it, and it was a huge hit. I think it was the number one movie of 1985. I got to give, you know, so we talked a little bit about Michael J. Fox. I got to give a moment to Christopher Lloyd, who plays Doc Brown. He is one of my favorite actors. He is still going today. In fact, he's going to show up in the new Mandalorian season. So now he's tied into Star wow. Wars. That'll be cool. Um, this man is a workhorse. He is, and the character that he does, it's a cross between Einstein and Leopold, Leopold Shakovsky, who's a conductor, who was just very manic in his decisions. And Christopher Lloyd, by all accounts, is a really passive, quiet, reserved 
kind of guy. So where does this manic energy come from in a lot of the roles that he does? Some of them are more reserved than others, like Uncle Fester uh, in the Adams Family in the early 90s. Doc Brown, most certainly, are just manic and crazy. And where does this reserved guy go completely 180 and go a completely different route? Because it's not by all accounts, naturally in him. That's where, acting. Where does it come from? It's awesome. That's acting. This yep. was such a cool role, and the 80s and early 90s was his time. I mean, whether it was One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest in the late 70s, Clue, which is a great one, Professor Plum, Roger Rabbit, Judge Doom, we just saw that one the other night. Um, boy, he was just, he was the man. Still is. Still does some great, great work. So, I just saw him in NCIS, where he was a survivor of Seriously? the Seriously? Yeah. He was, uh, we wanted to get buried on the USS Arizona, and he was uh, maybe a defector, and he wasn't really, we have no record of you, because I wasn't there. He gave a great performance in that, so he's still going. He's an awesome actor. He's so good at giving you an over-the-top performance in a role that works, or that, that, that feels like it's going to go over the top, but doesn't. It's, it's just restrained enough to where it makes the character very memorable. In the way that he performs, and the way that he does it, because it feels like, it feels like there's a touch of crazy that he has. It feels like there's a touch of yeah. of that extra bit of energy that he has. You know, think of his appearance in Star Trek and in um, Star- the Search for Spock and the Klingon role that he plays there. It feels like you've kind of got this this somewhat over the top Klingon here. This this somewhat this character who's got a lot a lot to it, and yet. And yet, at the same time, it's just restrained enough that you go, okay, this isn't this isn't totally nuts. This isn't totally overboard. There's just that right amount of it that's there, and and he brings that to Doc Brown too, because oh, yeah. there's a lot of charm to Doc Brown as well. The, the nice thing about with him is, as eccentric as he can be, like Reverend Jim from Taxi, and then he might do a character that's dark, like the Klingon Commander Krug. He's also played a dark. Um, a bad guy would be a good way to put it just in general in a movie called $20 that came out in the early 90s where he's not showing you anywhere near his ceiling. It's almost like watching Robin Williams play in Insomnia where he's very subdued. And you know that he is a manic guy. You know that at any moment, just because you know who it is and what he's capable of doing, that at any minute, he could just completely blow up. But he's not. You know there's a lot of ice under that iceberg below the surface that's just waiting to burst, maybe. And when Christopher Lloyd goes dark, it's just it's just that much testament to what kind of a good actor he is. And boy, did he bring it. And not only did he bring a good characterization, as an audience member, you need to be able to follow along with the logic of the plot and how does this time travel thing work and blah. He, in the second movie in particular, when you're talking about paradoxes, he had to memorize not just pages of dialogue in one particular scene, in any given particular scene. It was so exposition-filled with a lot of big words. In Star Trek, they call it technobabble, and you got to make it believable. Yeah. And he did it. I mean, he had to, I mean, what a kind of a preparation would that take to get it and deliver it flawlessly like he did, and so the audience can follow along with, okay, this is the way that this is going to work, so hey, everyone hang on, here are the, here's, here are the rules, here's how the ride is going to go, and go. And he was the guy that really pushed that part of it forward and did it Excellently. So if you're out there, Christopher Lloyd, call me. Big fan. Big fan. <laughs> oh, yeah. You've got the costume to show it and everything. I, I should have wore it today, but what am I saying? I've got the metal glasses and everything. But uh, Let's take a few minutes to talk about each movie within the series. Yeah. Starting with the first one, which was just the classic of classics, and that's what spawned the other two then was the job that was done with the first movie. So 
Very funny tr- point, though. At the end, everyone's so used to seeing the DeLorean flying right in at the camera and then to be continued. That was never on the big screen. It never made it to the big screen. Correct. It was when it went to video that Universal added that as sort of a you know sort of a joke but also kind of trying to prod the filmmakers that had already done great business on the big screen let's see if maybe and they kept trying to push and push and it was only a few years later that they were like all right fine we'll we'll do it so with the first movie itself you've got a there's a lot to like as far as storytelling development like you talked about earlier the threads that are developed early in the movie that get picked up later or addressed later and are done so so simply, so fluidly throughout the movie and, and or later in the movie as well. It's just, just great how little bits and pieces get picked up a, later on then again too. And even in the trilogy. But one of the other things that makes the first movie great, I think, is the presence of music. Oh, absolutely. And I'm not just talking about the soundtrack and talking about Huey Lewis in the News with The Power of Love, which became a hit in conjunction with Back to the Future. But music plays a big role in that movie just on the whole. I mean, Marty McFly, he's he, he's an he's aspiring musician. Yeah. yeah, he likes he likes to play likes to play the guitar and likes to likes to play it really hard as well as you see there in the uh, in he the likes, talent show tryout likes with the, the classics. Band. He likes the classics. Yeah, he he likes that little bit of a touch there. Um it and then he he goes back in time and then and then when he's when he finally does get his parents together, he pays it off with the band because hey, they need somebody to play the guitar. So he hops up there on stage with them and he plays an oldie but a goodie. And then he he realizes and catches himself and he's like, "Wait a second, maybe uh, not ready for that yet." Yeah, you're you're not you're not ready for well all of that yet. But and then he's like, "But your your kids will love it, of course." With playing Johnny Be Good, which. By the way, I just read this. Apparently, Chuck Berry withheld permission on Johnny B. Good until the day before filming. Yeah. And then finally relented and gave them per- permission. But then there's also that... Uh, the tie-in. There's, there's that, but there's also when George gets woken up by by Marty with that with the guitar there. Apparently that's Eddie Van Halen who took part and yep. played that there too. So music plays a huge role in making the movie what it is and plays a great role in making the movie stand out as well. Oh, absolutely. And uh, even the score, you know, the, the music and the, and the pop songs and the rock and roll is absolutely a big part of it, and that goes through the trilogy. But the soundtrack, uh, Alan Silvestri is the name of the guy. He had done some good, notable scores, but they were kind of, I don't know, electronic, you could say. He actually worked with Zemeckis on his movie just before that, uh, Jewel, uh, not Jewel of the Nile, but uh, Romancing the Stone. And it's fine for what it is, but it's very synth-heavy 80s. And Spielberg was like, I, I don't know. you know, I wasn't thrilled because it's, I don't think that's what you want for this one, but it's your movie. And Sylvester showed, oh, he's got a lot of layers. And the score to Back to the Future is as timeless and classic as any soundtrack I've ever heard, he and nailed it. Zemeckis also said, "quote It's got to be big." Yeah, and, I mean, you get that. Like the th- the music when Marty is is going and getting ready to take off from the clock tower with the lightning, like just just a classic. Which then well, comes up again later at the end of the movie. There's moments where the score to match Doc Brown and the situation of, oh my goodness, now the cable's not connected to the top of the clock tower. Oh my God. It's manic at times. And it is 
a stressful soundtrack because it needs to be in places. Part of the anxiety isn't just what you're seeing and part of the story. It's what you're hearing. And when things go worse, the soundtrack gets even more manic. I can't. Ah! And the soundtrack follows suit. And so it delivers anything that the, what's, what you can see doesn't deliver. The soundtrack picks up the rest and then some. And so it was absolutely a fantastic score. And, and Sylvester was there for the whole trilogy, so it's consistent all the way through. And, um, oh, absolutely. Everything, there was so much attention paid to detail and not just jokes paying off and situations paying off and Marvin Berry's uh, <laughs> hearing the song, calling his, it's his your cousin, cousin Chuck. Marvin Berry. Yep. And, of course, oh. Chuck Berry did Johnny Be Good. Great so moment. He, he must have heard it on the phone and copied it and stole it Chuck, from Marty. And, yeah. Chuck. <laughs> And, and Chuck Berry thought that was a funny joke uh, when he got the joke. He was like, yeah, I'm in. Really funny. We're not even talking about Earth Angel, which was included in there, too. And it's yep. another great moment in the movie as well. As Marty is basically disappearing into nothing there is, as Earth Angel is playing. And his parents finally confirm that they are going to be together, basically. And, and the future is set there at that point, which was... Thank goodness for Marty as he's like writhing in pain up on stage. You know, the two funny things that are worth pointing out, plot holes in the movie that kind of fade into this point. You know, Marty, what a fun name. And then, granted, just a few years later, you know, George and Lorraine are going to have a son. So why would Lorraine name the son after this would-have-been-boyfriend that didn't quite work out? Wouldn't that be kind of weird? As a dad, wouldn't you be annoyed to find out that the name didn't come from, like, a family name, but from some kid that your wife or girlfriend almost dated, kind of sort of dated, but did... But and then, who did want them to be together as well, but, so there but was then, that. But still, and then wouldn't it strike you 17 years later, he looks an awful lot like this guy who apparently meant a lot to us, enough to the point we were going to name our son after him. There's a big plot hole there that just has never really truly been addressed, but... Lorraine's got interesting priorities. We'll put it that way. Yeah, apparently. Uh, I mean, she's she's big on Calvin Klein. That's for sure. Well, <laughs> that's true. At least the the name, anyway. But yeah. yeah, it's it's funny how you see the consequences of actions pop up that way in the movie, and and the consequences of the past because what they did with the first movie. I mean, yes, they they focus so strongly on only doing one movie from the start but it was it was cool how they took some of the threads of of concepts and rules that they sort of put in place in the first movie and use those to be able to then shape how the next two movies came together as well the interesting way is that when they started writing a sequel what you ultimately see on screen compared to the original draft are very different they, they had to go to the future because that's where they were going initially. But rather than Biff and the Almanac and all of this, they end up going back to the 70s originally. And it was a very, very different movie. Crispin Glover was still going to be a part of it, and that's probably something also worth talking about. Yes. Um, is that it was wildly different. But on top of that, no, 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 this, I like where this is going, but this needs to be redone. So Bob Gale did a complete rewrite of the story. And it finally started to come together the way that we finally see it. And when he approached Zemeckis about it, he said, look, I got good news, I got bad news. Good news is I got a better story, we got this. The bad news is is this is too big for one movie. We're going to have to do two if we're going to do this story. And I think I've got the story nailed. And everyone's like, yeah, I like the story. But yeah, you're right. This is too big for a movie. Let's do a part two and part three. If we film them, not simultaneously, I think it was a week off between the part two scenes. They took a week off, and then they went to the Old West and did part three. 
Uh, but they essentially filmed them on top of one another. Plus, by now, they were kind of away from the whole Family Ties tie-up for, yeah, for Michael family, J. Fox as well. Family Ties wrapped up in 1989, and I got to think that that was no longer much of a factor. Um, so they rolled forward, and they did it that way. But this was one where they really, truly did make it a trilogy. Just because there's three parts to a movie franchise does not make it a trilogy. What really, truly makes it a trilogy is... Is it a continuation of the same story? Even more so than that, is it the same story just told in the next part and then a true final ending where part two of a trilogy oftentimes can be the weakest part because it's the linchpin, but it's part one and three that are the best. And Back to the Future holds up in that regard. Two does not drop the ball. It's just a different type of movie. Oh, And much, whip smart. Much different. Whip smart. And the third one is much more in tone with the first one. And it all tells one full, complete story. What I like about the second one is the way that it it gives Biff Tamlin, uh, Biff Tannen, yeah, Tannen, a chance to strike back in a way because Biff is sort of on top for the majority of the first movie. I mean, he at the very beginning of the movie, you just see he's he's bossing George around. He's completely in charge, and then you see that this has extended for decades i mean it goes back to when they were kids you you see that in the first movie and then marty's actions and then george's actions as well which changed the future change biff tannen's timeline uh, timeline that biff tannen's timeline it changes biff tannen's timeline then and you see that happen by the end of that movie there where it's like now he's the one who's who's having to serve george in a way but then in the second movie, you see as they jump back in time uh, f- from the very end of the first movie, Biff takes notice of that. And he's, he keeps that in mind. And then in the future, in 2015, all of a sudden, Biff resurfaces again, recalls that moment, and uses it to his advantage as he goes, hey, wait a minute, I can change my future. I can change my past. By pulling an almanac and getting an idea that Marty had, of maybe I can go and influence things financially a little bit here and gain a little bit for myself, which kind of addresses one of those things that makes you feel a little bit weird at the end of the first movie, which is there's all this material gain for the McFly family that you see at the end of the first movie that feels a little bit hollow. It feels a little hollow compared to the some of the the more heart-related things that, that change as well. There's also all this material stuff that comes with it too that kind of makes you go... I don't like with the truck that Marty gets. It's like this feels a little hollow and strange, but I like that the second movie kind of addresses that and Doc warns Marty regarding that of going, hey, don't use changing time here as a way to be able to gain for yourself so much. But then Biff does, and it changes things in in big, big ways. Well, a couple things about that. The 80s was the era of excess. And so really what that all is is a bigger deep dive into 1980s consumerism. It was huge in the 1980s. Right or wrong, it's what it was. And so you want to take that as a status symbol. One of the things that Crispin Glover had with that, with the ending, was I didn't like all the financial gains. So he was in on that. And there's, there's, there's absolutely a point to that. But it was what it was. But also what I looked at is more than it's not, well, now they have stuff. No, 
and they became the people that they could be. They were successful. George would, you know, their kid is working in an office now before he was working at, you know, with a paper hat and flipping burgers. And there's nothing wrong with any of that stuff. But what do you want to do? Do you want to have your hand on the tiller or do you want to be pushed by the tide? And they decided to get their hands on the tiller, the entire McFly family. And if that affords them success and with success comes money and freedom and the ability to do things. For me, I always saw it as it's not that they have things now, but they have the better opportunities for themselves, not just because they might have financial uh, advantageous um, situation compared to where they were in the original timeline, but they have finally plotted their own course. They're happier as people, and it's not because they have stuff that might be you know a nicer couch that doesn't have a spring that's poking you in the butt cheek. But you know it's that you can do what you want to do. I wanted to be an author, and I always wanted to do it, but I didn't have confidence in myself, and now I'm a successful author. And here's the newest book that's just come out. That to me is what always spoke to me, and all the other stuff was bonus. That's just that's gravy, you know. But that's not the steak. That's not the turkey for Thanksgiving. That's the gravy stuff, mm. and that's the way I always took it as. Yeah, you know, it's nice. That's awesome. But that's not why I'm here. So obviously, I work in radio. If I wanted the money, I'd be a doctor, and I'd hate my life. But I love what I do. <laughs> just to give you an example, you and I both do. There yeah. we go. Well, there were some other challenges that were faced going into the second movie, then too. Um, and you mentioned it earlier about the fact that they had to change George McFly going in because Crispin Glover, they couldn't come to an agreement for for whatever reason. Apparently, for Glover, it was a little bit. If you ask him, it was a little bit more philosophical regarding the movie, like you just described. According to others, it was related to what he was getting paid, and it's a lot kind of, of that. It, it kind of lands in the middle somewhere there too. But it wasn't just him; it was also Jennifer Parker as well, and and who played her. Different stories with those. Real quick, um, Claudia Wells had played Jennifer Parker in the first one. At the time they were filming the second one, her mom was very very sick. I think it was cancer, and I think she ultimately died from it. Uh, she really needed to help take care of her mom. Well, they needed to make the movie now, and they just you know more or less with her blessing moved on, and they got Elizabeth Shue to take over the role. Uh, there's no love lost or anything like that. It's just. Um, or no hard feelings, I should say, they're cool. Everything's fine. Crispin Glover was another story, and then it ultimately evolved into a point that actually went became a very prolific court case. It did. And we'll, we'll get to that, but um, depending on who you talk to, Crispin Glover is a very eclectic guy. He's um, a more harmless version of Shia LaBeouf, if you want to put it that way, where Shia LaBeouf was just extremely careless and just kind of an ASS, you know, honestly. Crispin Glover was just really quirky, and he had his opinions, and he had his things. Uh, there's a long, long list of this. It has no relation to Back to the Future at all. He got banned from The Tonight Show because he almost kicked Letterman in the face. Just, <laughs> just because, And that's on YouTube. You can find it. He was just really quirky and always has been. Um, and so ultimately got to the point where, all right, let's get this guy in. But he was making huge demands. He wanted to be paid whatever Michael G. Fox was. He had a lot of things to problems with the script. And Bob Gale basically apparently was going to give him one chance. Like, here's the deal. Here's your contract. Do you want? No. And then they never sent him another deal. It was like, fine, he, he passed on it. We're done. We're going to move on. And they basically wrote George out of the sequels moving forward. But you can't have him just not there. So they ended up hiring another guy named Jeffrey Weissman. But he was always shown in the distance or upside down or out of focus or something. But he looked enough like Glover but not enough like Glover. So when they had to do the time sequences where you're old in the in the beginning and the end but you're younger for the most of the movie, they had to make prosthetic pieces for both Christian Glover and Thomas F. Wilson and Leah yeah. Wilson. They took those molds – 
and uh, made of Crispin Glover's face and made molds to go on to this guy's face. So essentially, and they also had scenes from part one that were inserted into part two was actually Crispin Glover. They took existing footage and put it in, basically making it look like Crispin Glover was in part two. And now there is a lot of talk, and just to give you a sidebar, there's a lot of talk about using your likeness, whether it's in video games or anything else, Uh, even college football players, their likeness in games. It's that very heart of the matter that became part of this big court ruling that Crispin Glover won. And now movies have to be a lot more legal, yes, but a lot more careful about using the likeness of somebody that is not in their product. Pretty significant case that came from it. and. It's not too surprising that it worked out the way that it did because, yeah, I understand the position that they were in, but they didn't do enough due diligence as far as recognizing the consequences that could come from that, too. Speaking of which, for for what they were, uh, what they based the whole premise of Back to the Future around. So, very interesting sidebar there that came yep. into it. But they ran into that because part two is such an interesting yo yo between the future and and the past, including retracing steps that had been taken back in the first movie, which leads to a really, really interesting ending to the second movie, where you have Doc Brown sending Marty McFly back to the future, which he did at the end of the first movie, and then you have Marty McFly appearing behind him and and showing him that he's there. It can't be you. I just sent you. Yes, I know, but I'm back from the future. And the cliffhanger ending was one that the filmmakers were wary of because it wasn't really a true ending. But they were, like we said, they had a week off between filming two and three. There was enough shots done for three that Zemeckis said, I'm not just leaving it on a cliffhanger. I want a trailer, a teaser at the end of the movie for part three. Yes. So at the end of uh, the very last shot to be continued, can be concluded, boom, immediately before the credits even, you get the first teaser trailer for part three which was coming out six months later. Yep. And I liked that. I get a kick out Pretty of that. Pretty cool. Oh, yeah. it was, that was awesome. Oh, we're coming back, and I remember Memorial I remember Weekend. watching it on VHS when I was a kid and seeing that and going, yeah. whoa, we got a glimpse of the next movie right yeah. here. Yeah, and so. six months later, I think uh, Part 2 came out in November of, of 89, and then Memorial Weekend of 90, Part 3 came out. Awesome, 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 awesome. Loved it. I mean, the tone of Part 2 is, is much darker given the – the timeline that Biff Tannen creates with the changes that he makes and everything. But it is, it, it's neat then how you have to watch Marty go through bobbing and weaving through things that he just encountered from back in the first movie and not trying to disrupt too much as he's trying to reach back in time like that with all of it. So cool the way that it did that. I know there's a lot packed in it. It's, it's kind of a whirlwind, the second movie, because you go from going into 2015 and in that particular time frame to then you bounce back to 1985, then it's back to 1955, and it adds up to a lot going on to the point where you kind of forget that, oh, they oh yeah, they started in the future and they didn't necessarily spend all that much time there. But what worked really well, too, was they left some threads out there from 2015 that weren't fully addressed until the very end of the third movie, which was cool, too, including... 
something, some things that Jennifer Parker discovers that has her concerned regarding the future that then don't get addressed until the very end of the third movie. So again, great writing. Yeah, this was one where they had no idea that two and three were coming when they did the original, but there was enough there, like crashing into the manure truck that kept popping up in each of the sequels. Uh, but yeah, then, but I, I'm not a big fan of repeating stuff like that sometimes in movies, history uh, repeats in, itself. in sequels, but... Yeah, I I like that concept about it. When you put it that way, history repeating itself. Well, and there's a it lot. It works. It works there along with kind of a classic sequel trope that's there. Yeah, a, a funny way of playing on a sequel trope Th- like there's that. There's a lot of homage that pops up through not just the first movie but the sequel. Did you realize that the mayor from 1955, when Marty first shows up, reelect Red, whatever his name was. And the bum on the bunt on the bench when he first, when he gets back to 1985, same guy. <laughs> I don't know if you noticed that the the soon to be you know sh- uh, the guy mopping the floor in the cafe, Goldie Wilson. He's going to be the mayor, and he yes. shows up in part two. Goldie Wilson, yeah. So there's all that fits in. But when they were writing two and three, like I said, when they were writing it, that was going to be one movie, and then there was too much, and they had to break it into two movies. But that was all designed to be parts two and three of a true trilogy, and I mean a trilogy. They will not do the fourth one when they showed up to the premiere of the third one all of the for the filmmakers spielberg zemeckis they were all wearing custom t-shirts that they had done that had the stylized version of the number four roman roman numeral with a big circle and slash through it (laughs) basically saying there will not be a fourth one and so with this era now of all these remakes Spielberg is never, ever, ever going to let it happen. And when Spielberg says it's not happening, guess what? It's not going to happen. And I don't just mean when he's alive, when he goes, everything will change. No, this will, there will never be another Back to the Future anything, ever. Well, and it sets up for a definitive beginning and end, which is yes. nice. And so you get that then in Part 3, when Part 3 came along. And they go back in time to 1885 and go way back into the Old West, where they have to be able to address some of some of the consequences of the previous movie and and go and get that all figured out but marty finds there's there's trouble in terms of being able to do that because doc brown suddenly has a very personal tie to this time frame and with the clara uh, clara clayton character yeah and the pacing is so much slower it's breakneck for part two and part three it's like In the old west, where time is not really moving fast at all, but a much everyone... a much lighter tone and tenor oh, yeah. too. But it's then, much more like the first one. But then you also get some threads to the second movie that that get picked up in there, including Marty wanting to be in this duel and and be in this fight. But Doc warns him against that because there is something from the future that Marty is not fully aware of that ends up impacting him for the rest of his life. Yeah, but they're they're kind of different things. Now, if Marty gets shot in this duel, if he does and doesn't get back to the future, well, then there won't be the car accident that's coming that it keeps getting hinted at in part two. If it wouldn't have been for that accident, what accident? What are we talking about? Finally comes around, but Marty, you, you can't call him by a name. You know, you can't challenge his, you know, manlyhood or he's going to just go completely stupid to prove that he is, in fact, not a chicken. And it just kind of evolves and evolves. He has to <laughs> learn his way out of it. So he uses his brain rather than facing off against Biff the way that Biff wants to. He does things his way. He does confront him because you kind of have to. There's no way around it at this point. Yeah. But he doesn't go down and play the game by Biff. But does not play Biff's game by Biff's rules. There we go. And then at the end of the movie, 
He finally does the same thing. I'm not stupid enough to race that guy and now changes the future. There will be no accident. So it's not a bottle movie. Everybody evolves and makes their way to some point where they started at one point and at the end of the trilogy, they have evolved beyond who they were at the beginning of the trilogy into hopefully a better version and a better future, including Doc. And that's something that I really like about the way that the third movie concludes. And again, sort of comparing it back to how the first movie concludes, I love the theme that comes from it at the end and as jennifer pulls out that fax and it's blank and and doc goes hey the future's not yet been written so make it good and that's great advice yeah really really good way to be able to finish it out and to finish out a series that has talked so much about time travel and about consequences of actions and about how much do you know about what's ahead in the future or not know very key part of the first movie when Doc finally decides, all right, I'm not going to take any chances here. I'm going to open this letter that Marty gave me, and I'm going to come ready with a bulletproof vest. Well, he figured, what the hell? So, in the end, it's it's a great theme to leave a series like this on that, that is so much about what your act, the, the consequences of your actions and what that all leads into, but also about the fact that we don't know what the future actually holds. And they find a way to be able to finish on that note. So it was a great way to tie it off. Fun to go back to the Old West like that. Yet again, Marty takes on a persona of somebody else. Calvin Klein in the first movie. Clint Eastwood in the third movie. I understand they had to, obviously had to go to Clint Eastwood himself and say, look, here's the joke. And he was like, oh, that sounds like a hoot. Do it. Do it. And so, of course, they did. And apparently, when Eastwood saw the movie, he loved it. They screened (laughs) the first one at the White House when Reagan was president. And, of course, there's a Reagan joke in there. Reagan, the president of the United States, stood up and yelled back at the projection guy, rewind it. I want to see that again. (laughs) And he thought it was a hoot. He was laughing. They had to back up the movie a second time so he could see the parts he missed through all the laughing. Uh, so, I mean, it clearly was all good-natured. It wasn't, I mean, the second movie got a little dark, but even then, it was still all light-natured and good good fun, and let's have some good times, and it worked. It really, really worked. Um, you know, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the only other character that we haven't really talked about, which is an inanimate object, but has become much more than that. Yes, I'm glad you're going there. If you're going to have a time machine, what what does the time machine look like? Is it basically a bathtub-looking thing with a spinning wheel like you saw in the movie The Time Machine? Originally, this was going to be something built into like a refrigerator. An inanimate object. An inanimate object. And then it occurred to them, this was back when refrigerators had like an actual latch, not like the magnetic thing now, where if you were in the refrigerator and the refrigerator doors closed today in 2020, just push on the door and it'll just open. It's just magnetic. Not the case. At Not that then. Time. There were latches. If you ever went to your grandparents' basement where they had the old freezer, this thing was a latch. If you got in that refrigerator, you're in the refrigerator until somebody lets you out. Kids had gotten stuck in there. And it occurred to the filmmakers, maybe we might have kids that might something, something. Spielberg in particular apparently yes. was the one who said no. But then it was like, well, why would we build a time machine that's immobile? How do you move this time machine? And on top of that, it wasn't a lightning bolt of the clock tower that was what powered this thing at the end of the first one in the first version of the script. They were going to go to an atomic test site back in the 50s in the desert when they were still testing atomic bombs. 
and that was going to be the 1.21 gigawatts or gigawatts we've learned now that was going to power this refrigerator time machine. So they had to come up with a reconceptualization. I would make it mobile. I would build it into a car. Well, then you got all kinds of things. And truly, it came from a joke that developed what this time machine was going to actually be. Well, what if this time machine shows up back in the 50s and they mistake it for a flying saucer? Well, a Ford Focus... Or a Chevrolet ain't going to cut it. It looks like a car, but just a little more modern. But there was this guy who had come up with his own line of cars called named after himself. John DeLorean had come up with this very space-age, gullwing doors. I mean, it was very futuristic for the late 70s, early 80s when he came up with this thing. Steel, stainless steel construction. It, was, it looked kind of like a UFO. Let's do that one. And they did, and they made this thing look like it wasn't built on an assembly line. Clearly some crack job had put this into his garage and just stapled wires to it and just It was made a it personal work. project thing. Oh, yeah. yeah, and even the big vents on the back to you know reflect the nuclear cooling towers and all of that. I mean, it was just done in such a way in a product of its time, but also the punchline to a joke. But to the point, about the time that this movie came out, the DeLorean Motor Company went belly up. Then this movie comes out, and DeLoreans have been sought after ever since. And now, (laughs) honest to goodness, since 2010, even though the original DeLorean company went out of business, they're back in business. These were originally made in Ireland. Now they're making them out of a warehouse in Texas. You can now buy a brand new, never been driven, right off the line DeLorean. And no small part of this is in thanks to Back to the Future. I'm sure your wife has to try to keep you from doing that every time you look at your bank account and go, I could afford this a little bit, right, Dave? It has crossed my mind once or twice, yeah, but then again. Yeah, but then she's like, whoa, whoa, no, whoa, wait I, a second. The more rational side of me has said, uh, okay, hold on, hold on. Good. I'd thought about for like my birthday one time, you can rent some of these, but they're not in Minnesota. If there was one down in the Twin Cities I could rent, I would probably do it for my birthday. I would imagine you would. There's a few in California. If I ever go to California for my birthday, maybe I'll rent one. Two things apparently on the DeLorean. Number one, there were three different ones that were that were purchased and used for this. For the first movie. Yes, for the first movie. But apparently they were relatively unreliable. According to reports, they were unreliable, broke down, weren't the easiest to film with. But it still ended up working out pretty great. Number two... 88 miles per hour was determined as as the speed that they were going to use. Why? Because it was, quote, easy to remember and looked cool on the speedometer, which I guess is pretty true. Funny thing, though, if you ever, anyone that has a DeLorean, and pardon me, I just took a bite of my donut, so bad timing, I apologize. Sorry. The speedometer on the DeLorean actually only goes up to 85. (laughs) Now, wait a minute. I remember watching the speedometer on the DeLorean. It was a 90 on there. Yes, there was. They built that one special for the movie. So, enough. It is is pretty cool on that digital readout, though. Just the entire digital readout looks great. Of this is where you want to go. This is where you are. I mean, that whole setup just looks great. It looks so 80s. And yeah, 88 just looks kind of slick there when when you're trying to get to there and that digital readout is showing it. It just has a, a pretty neat appeal to it for whatever reason, like the uniformity of it all. Oh, yeah. And the infinity look of it as well because you are racing through time too. So you have something like that. And then the I never fact thought that, of that. That's and then a good the point. fact that it just explodes into a flash of lightning and disappears. The fire and then you trails. see the, the fire trails that are there too. But yeah, the infinite look of the eights 
when you talk about the time travel that's there, I it never just, thought of it that. Just all adds up. I never yeah. thought of the infinity part. That's a see. I've seen that movie probably literally a hundred times, and it never occurred to me. That's I that's just double came infinity. up with that on the spot. So pound that, but yeah. yeah, you know everything about that machine. Even the doors opening made special sounds that don't really happen when you open a DeLorean door. But I mean, everything about that car was just it was clearly thought of and labor of love put together. Andrew Probert had a lot to do with that. Shout out to him. Sidebar, and a really quick one here because we're almost out of time, but the other item that that comes up a lot throughout the course of these movies is past and present versions of skateboards. You see yes. that in the first movie with the proper skateboard, but then the one that Marty comes up with on the fly in that chase with Biff and his gang. But then in the second movie... There came the hoverboard, which became its own thing then, too, and and the shoes and, and all of that. Hoverboards actually exist today, but they're not quite like you think they're supposed to be. They call them hoverboards, but they don't really hover. But here was the fun part. Zemeckis, as a joke, in the behind-the-scenes, gave an interview where he said, actually, these were real things, but Mattel you know, didn't want to release them because of lawsuit fears. And people took that and ran with it. And why well, want a hoverboard? They said they really, they don't exist. They hung on wires. There was a lot of ways they achieved the effect, but there are no boards like that that hover. I mean, you can get one that'll fit on your desk. That'll, you know, one magnet can make the thing hover, but not like what you see in the movie. But because people heard him say that, people went berserk and wanted a real hoverboard. I think finally they, they came along with those. But then you also have another item, too, kind of in conjunction with the skateboards, the shoes, yeah. Marty's shoes. I mean, Kev Jackson walks around with Marty McFly shoes around those here. those are the, like the 85 Nikes, not the self-lacing yeah, exactly. power shoes. No, not, not the mags. Not the mags. <laughs> those were completely different. But the shoes kind of became something that was their own little unique avenue, too. You know, but here's the other fun thing. So we show 2015, and they they came up with that in 1989 or 88 when they filmed it. Uh, so now we're not just that, but all of Back to the Future, including the future, is now in our past. Well, there are no flying cars. There is no self-hydrating pizza ovens. What was funny was, and you came over to the house for this, I had a party at my house on the day that they went into the future, and we did a triple feature on that day, October 21st of yes. 2015. I had a bunch of people over. We had some snacks. We had I some had good times. I had only been here in town for a few months. Yeah. yeah. I, we just met. Mark, come on over. Have a good time. You might meet some people. It'll be a good time. Um, in fact, we did have some people meet. Now they're married so at that party, so that was kind of cool. Anyway, uh, so what we did was the triple feature. We just had a good time with this thing. And when they re-released the 30th anniversary version of the entire trilogy, they actually got Christopher Lloyd back in Doc Brown costume, and they did like a... I can't call it a documentary because it's done in tone with the movie where clearly the future has been altered from what is shown into this trilogy. And it's not an interview. It's, well, this must have happened and this thing happened and now the whole world has changed and a paradox and there are no flying cars and all of that. And that was a hoot, too, because obviously a lot of the stuff you see in 2015 in the movie versus the real, nobody had a smartphone. Nobody, you know, there was no Google Glasses or anything. There was no rolling hoverboards. It was a very different kind of a reality future. Um, but it was fun the way that they addressed that, obviously not in the movie, but in this little companion 
10-minute documentary or whatever to go along with it. So it does kind of work out in a way. It's Everything was so thought out and, and figured out in advance that it is such a treasure. And I consider the entire trilogy one movie. So when I say Back to the Future is my favorite movie, I mean one through three. And there will never be a fourth one, and nor should there be. Um, very rarely can you improve on what is perfection. Leave never, it alone. Never remake it either, no. too. Yeah, it just... It all comes together into being a, a really entertaining piece of cinema and one that, that uses some concepts that are familiar and yet does it in a in a different sort of way with time travel in particular. And yes, set the stage for how others would approach the concept of time travel and go through it. Um, but doing it in a very comedic way as well and almost a fantasy-like way too that, that the movie decides to go with you know two points i'll make here real quick hoove and i were talking just before we started the podcast about some movies and what we would rate them and all of this and i i generally will rate a movie on a one to ten and five is was it entertaining yes immediately go to five because anything above entertaining just how entertaining and how good is gravy so then you can get higher points i would give the trilogy a nine overall all of it it's just can it improve anywhere i think anything could improve over anything yes but where could you come up with a place where I would make it better? Eh, if I really thought about it, maybe. But off the top of my head, the whole trilogy, one through three, gets a nine. The maybe other pairing a few things down in the second movie a little bit since there is so much packed in there. But and if you're you took jumping some... all over the place, but it's hard to do that because what would you take out? Something right, would be lost. Right. You you kind of have to jump from time frame to time frame to time frame there to, in order to make it work. The middle part of a trilogy is always the hardest to master because uh, not only that, but sticking the landing at the end of part three, but uh, it is the linchpin. So oftentimes, true trilogies, the middle one is the weakest one because it's more about exposition and not so much letting it just do its thing. But the other thing I'll bring up real quick, I've got a son who is six and a half years old. I can't wait to show him Back to the Future. I haven't shown it to him yet. I've shown him some other things that are a little easier to follow, but the concept of time for a six-year-old head is just a little advanced. I think he would enjoy yeah. the movie, but I don't think he would get it. Uh, so when Back to the Future came out, I was about 10 years old. I understood how all that works. We're getting there. We're getting close. And every now and Soon again, enough, I'll show him pictures of himself when he was a baby, and he's like, well, who's that? I said, that's you. Oh, it's not me because I look like this now. I said, yes, but things change over time. So he's getting the concept of how time flows. And if he can't really get it now, why would I show him a movie where that's what it's all about and how time moves? When he gets a little older, holy moly, are we going to have popcorn movie night in our basement? <laughs> and I am so going to be... <gasps> Please like it. You know, it's one of those things you're always afraid your kid is not going to like things that you like, and I accept that, but I hope this one is not one of them. You're going to be like, get ready. The next three nights, it might not we're be... going to take a little ride here. Yeah, it'll, it'll, we'll come around to it. We might even do a triple feature, or maybe we'll stretch it out, but it'll, it'll be a couple years down the road, and I can't wait. Yeah. And it's one of those movies where there's a lot of other movies and shows and other, call it properties, where parents who grew up with it can't wait to pass it down. And that's kind of a rarity. I mean, Star Wars is its own thing. Back to the Future is one of those things where it's just the three. And there was an animated series, by the way, got to give a shout out, that came out in the early 90s that was also really good. And other fun side note, Bill Nye, the science guy, that's where he got his start. Because the beginning right. and end yep. of the movie actually has Christopher Lloyd back as Doc Brown, and then there's something scientific that happens in the movie, and then they explain it at the end with Bill Nye, Doc's science 
partner. And then the middle is all cartoon with, funny enough, Dan Castellaneta, the voice of Homer Simpson, doing the voice of Homer of Doc for the actual episode. It was a well-done show. It lasted for two years. You could buy the DVD box set or Blu-ray and get that with it. And it's very, very well done. Um, boy, Back to the Future was the sum of its parts and the greatest movie-themed ride I've ever been on, which unfortunately doesn't exist anymore. It used to be at Universal Florida and Hollywood. I think the one in Tokyo is still going, okay, but not for long. They tore it down and built the Simpsons ride there now. But because it was like man, it was like 2011 or so when the ride was around, something right? like that. That's yeah. when, about when they closed yeah. it down. But man, was it! Awesome. And you can even find footage of the ride. It's on YouTube. They had it come out on one of the DVD sets. It There's so much about it, and everything about it is so controlled, it's special. It's not like, I hate to say Star Wars. They've got everything stamped with a Star Wars sticker on it. I bought a bag of grapes that had BB-8 and a Star Wars sticker on it. How does that tie into the movie exactly? Ah, we got money for it. That's all that matters. You don't see that with Back to the Future. It's so, well, why are we going to do that? We don't even want to do a video game about this if it's not any good, despite the Nintendo versions that came out. Right. Uh, It was just excellent. It's just everything about Back to the Future rocks. I cannot recommend it enough. Maybe this is enough to get you to go back and watch it if it's been a little while for you, but there it is, the definitive Rick and Nick Talk Flicks review on Back to the Future Sponsored by the Bemidji Theater on Highway 2, just down from the airport. Three awesome movies. Three movies that continue to... Really only one movie that just broke up into three two-hour parts. Very fair. Yeah, and and when you think about that time frame that it all takes place in, which I hadn't thought about before in that two-week span, kind of crazy to think about that, too. But Back to the Future, it's a good one. They're all good ones to get to go back and take in again, even if we are a few years after when they actually did jump into the future, which got the craze going all over again. I mean, I dressed as Marty McFly for that, for yeah. that party, and that was a I blast. Did, I did two versions of Doc Brown. I was dressed as you know, like time-traveling Doc Brown, and then I think about the time the third one I changed and put on the duster and the hat and did Old West Doc Brown. Yes, and you did. Ordered yep. a Pizza Hut just a time that the Pizza Hut of pizza gets hydrated in part two, and <laughs> we had all kinds of themed food and drink, and it was, and that's not just something you have to do on a special day of a anniversary you can do it on a random wednesday if you want to if you want to really do this and live it up you can absolutely make it an event or just sit down and introduce it to your kids and just simply press play it is one of those movies that is so entertaining there's there's no way around not having a good time just remember though that deloreans are a little expensive and hard to come by that's true too that that itself may have to remain a dream. I'll, a I'll tell you bit. what, I am a grown man. I have a wife and a house and a mortgage and a son. And if I still see it, there's one in town here that drives around occasionally. And when I do see it, yep. I totally revert into an eight-year-old. I mean, completely. I just become a babbling idiot. You've talked about that oh, before. <laughs> just, oh, yeah. I, I know the guy that owns it, and I, I'm still not allowed to touch it. Right. Well... Hey, if, if I was a collector like that and I, and I had somebody who was basically slobbering all over it like you kind of do, um, yeah, I, I guess I, I can understand. I haven't had the chance to. I don't blame him. <laughs> I wouldn't want somebody to go spoon my car either, so I get it. On that very awkward note, thanks for joining us for the definitive Rick and Nick Talk Flicks review of Back to the Future. Until next time, until the future, I'm Joel Hoover. I'm Doc Brooks. And we will see you at the movies. 